Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So what do you think of this decision that was, you know, the, the law that is being passed today in Parliament, providing that 75% subsidy for the first 58700 earned, up to $847 per week for 12 weeks retroactive March to March the 15th? Well, I think everyone has good intentions, and the government's trying to do what they can, and they also want to be seen uh, as being helpful in this. Uh, it is very difficult to administer, though, you know, and, uh, how... You, how you collect, and I think, as you correctly said, when you collect. So it's going to be a little bit bumpy. And uh, I, I was saying to somebody who was complaining about their employer the other day, I said, everybody's trying to do the right thing, but there's not a playbook here. So I think the government's trying to do what they can to help. Um, and, and, but it's, again, the execution. The intention is great. Uh, the measure is good. And then how we execute. But timeliness is very important because, clearly, when you need the money, you need the money. And and uh, as much as uh, some credit institutions sound accommodating, they do want their money eventually. Would you assess for us the reality of the Canadian economy today versus the worst time in 2009? Uh, 2009 was essentially uh, a financial crisis. Uh, it, and, and they were able to isolate that crisis within the financial world, that is the banking system. It was all these subprime mortgages. This is, this is different. They, they were able to help with, in 2009 because they flushed the system with cash and it didn't get to Main Street. Unfortunately, this thing is everywhere. It's Main Street and the financial world. So it's a little bit, it, it's more pervasive, it's more widespread, it's affecting absolutely everyone. So it's, a, it's quite a different cattle of fish. What has changed specifically in the last two weeks since we spoke uh, the last time? And I asked you then about whether or not people should stay invested in the market, stay where they are. And you were saying at that point you weren't making any specific or major changes. You were looking still for opportunities in the market. Has anything changed in your thinking? What, what I've done over this last couple of weeks, I mean, you, it's a, I said to uh, our traders, this is a day-at-a-time market. You can't make a decision now on how it's going to be two months from now. Uh, what I have done a little bit over that period of time is do some lightning. Basically, uh, I run one big pool. It's, 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 it's about 200 and some odd million dollars. And I've been lightening a few small tag-end positions really to get some running room to come back at this thing because I have to look beyond the crisis. What's this economy? What's the market going to look like uh, coming out of this? And coming out of it, clearly the timing is key. When is that going to be? And it's going to be a bit lumpy. Some industries such as travel, hospitality, energy, uh, there's some problems there, and uh, they won't be coming back as quickly. Financial services, still functioning. So what I did is I didn't build big cash reserves, but I made sure uh, any credit lines we had were all paid off. We had some extra cash. Uh, but that wasn't big selling. That wasn't a major part of the portfolio. I'm still long the positions I'm long. And, and as you can see, in the last two weeks, this market has come back almost, not quite half of what the decline has been, about 30 to 40 percent. So it did bounce back. And there's always the danger of getting faked out, faked in, or getting whipsawed, as we say in the trade. So, uh, you know, I'm still essentially long. I haven't run for the doors or anything yet. I'm looking at what this thing is going to look like at the end of it. And the world we're going to see for investors coming out of this is a world of isolationism. Uh, China is going to be a pariah, by the way. Trump, President Trump will use this in the matter of trade. And economies are isolating. I want to be in the biggest isolated environment there is. That is America. So, I, uh, you know, I will enhance my focus in the U.S. market.
How much of a challenge is it going to prove to be for the economies of Canada and the United States to restart? And I suppose what happens here will be dependent in large order to uh, on, on what happens in the United States. That's just my guess. But where do you see the greatest challenges in restarting our economy? Well, it, it's, it's interesting because that's something government can't do. That's going to come down to, to businesses. And smaller businesses are the most vulnerable. I mean, that restaurant or that uh, hardware store, mind you, they kept open right until now. They still are basically in business. But those, some of them aren't going to be there. I mean, they just may not be. They may go through this trough, but just not have enough cash at the end of it. So, but I think the small business, despite being the most vulnerable, that's the quickest to restart. You can open that restaurant tomorrow morning if this, if this isolation business had, uh, has, is terminated. So they can turn quickly. Financial services, they'll be fine. Uh, I, think, I think the U.S. economy can get going. It'll be, going, it'll be slow at first, functioning on two cylinders, then, then three, then four, and sort of work its way through when we come off this. But again, timing is key, and you have that dynamic in Washington you know, between the administration wanting to end it sooner than later and the health officials wanting to be maybe over uh, secure. And, and I understand that, because if you get rid of this quarantine and this uh, comes back, it's going to be really hard to reinstitute that quarantine. So, you know, I think governments were behind the curve when this thing started. They will be behind the curve coming out of this as well. But I think the economies can come back. Canada does have some fundamental problems, and particularly in the energy area, uh, oversupply, with lots of controversies going on. So we, you have to look at each industry. Financial services should be all right. As I keep joking, you know, the banks in Canada are a protected species. Uh, so, you know, I think that area will be all right. I think we can come back reasonably well. Let's say, and this is purely hypothetical, it's not my prognostication, but if it were to end, say, at the end of April, I think the economies would pick up fairly quickly. If it were ending at the end of August, that would be quite a different matter. There'd be a lot of casualties between now and then. So the dynamic is, and the question is, when? And one of the challenges, of course, to uh, get the small business sector underway and rolling again, because as we've been hearing from Dan Kelly of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, so many people in, in business independently, entrepreneurs, have lost a lot of confidence, lost a, lost a lot of money, and many are not sure whether they'll actually be able to get started again. Well, sadly, that's going to be the case. Uh, there will be some that won't make it. But remember, that's the sector that is not only the most vulnerable, but it's also the sector that provides the most jobs. Exactly. I mean, if you're seeing the economy, take a look at the Canadian economy and any economy. It's divided into two groups, those who work for the government, who are totally insulated, and those who pay governments. Uh, who are not insulated and highly vulnerable, and the and the most productive are the most vulnerable. That is the small uh, enterprise. So it's going to be a, a tough game. But the good news is they can restart quickly, and if given enough running room from their banks and creditors, uh, many will be able to survive and come through this. But some may not make it, and some may have been on the cusp before this thing started too. So it's hard to say. Uh, just before I talk to my guest here, the most recent numbers on uh, on COVID in Canada, 22,000-plus cases, uh, 427 are new, 6,000 have recovered, and just under 16,000 active cases now. There have been 600 deaths and 31 new deaths. Joining me on the program is Dr. Ronald St. John. He's the former director of the Center for Emergency Preparedness 
and response with the Public Health Agency of Canada. He was also the director of the Office for Special Health Initiatives at Health Canada, responsible for planning, programming for quarantine and migration health, travel medicine. And he was also with the Global Public Health Intelligence Network and counterterrorism, and with the World Health Organization Regional Office for the Americas. So what's going on now inside the Public Health Agency of Canada, and what is their mandate? Dr. St. John, good to have you back on the program. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. Um, Let me start with this. People, uh, or the police, are going to be visiting people ordered into quarantine and alerting them to the fact that they may face heavy fines and possible imprisonment if they violate quarantine orders. This is in, in conjunction with the Public Health Agency of Canada. Was this to be expected? Did you think we were going to get to this point? Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <clears throat> uh, just a bit of history. During the SARS outbreak in 2003, we asked people uh, who were con- potential contacts of cases to stay uh, self-isolated in their homes in a quarantine. We, at, one, at any particular day, we had about 7,000 people in Toronto who uh, were in quarantine. With, I mean, you can't put a policeman on everybody's front doorstep to make sure they don't go outside. Uh, there was remarkable compliance. Uh, I remember, as I recall, only two citations were ever issued for violation of that quarantine request. So I, I, think, I think that there is great compliance by the Canadian public when asked to do difficult things. But on the other hand, it's also, I think, reasonable to do some spot checks to make sure. Quarantine Act is a law, and it does require people to follow the law. You mentioned 2003 and SARS. That just seems like forever ago, and it really isn't that long. I mean, it's in the memory of so many people, millions of people in this in this country, and particularly in southern Ontario, which was where the major problem was, but it just seems like forever um, that just tells us how quickly it's odd because sometimes it feels like the time is moving ahead very quickly and that other times it just feels like it's moving along at a snail's pace. It's a, it's difficult to wrap your head around that at times, or maybe that's just me. Um, if you were, uh, Dr. St. John, if you were still in your former position at Public Health Canada, what would you be most interested in now? At the present time, it would be federal-provincial-territorial coordination at the, in the health issues. Uh, at that time, we had a, it's called FPT, Federal-Provincial-Territorial uh, Network, that we had established for emergency preparedness and response in the health sector. And uh, we had several opportunities to sort of test that network, but now I would be very interested to know how that network is actually operating uh, in the, under the present circumstances. So that would be my primary uh, concern as, as a federal servant, public servant. What are your thoughts about how different provinces have and are currently addressing COVID-19 concerns and the federal government, and how closely does uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada work with individual provinces? Well, <clears throat> it's a little difficult. I've been away for a little while from the inner workings of the Public Health Agency, and so I'm not sure, I'm not certain what, what kinds of mechanisms or committees or et cetera they might have operational at the present time um, and what, how uh, the public health agency is operating across, across the different federal ministries. But um, I think, I think the, uh, the, 
it's important to be sure that everyone understands why one province might do something a little differently from another. The provinces are different. Their populations are different. And, uh, and they may have different requirements for social isolation and, and isolation of patients and so forth. So there may not be total uniformity across the country, but it's important to understand the reasons why there might be differences. Can you see the day where, who knows what's going to happen in the weeks ahead, but can you see the day where it's, there's just no um, traffic, no other than essential traffic between the provinces in this country or among the provinces? I hope I don't. I don't think we're going to get that far. Um, I, I think <clears throat> I think that the idea, whole idea of non-essential travel, uh, such as uh, such as the province of Quebec, is put forward and and is uh, asked people in Ontario, for example, not to not to do non-essential travel to Quebec and vice versa. <clears throat> I think non-essential travel should be curtailed as much as possible, but I don't think. We need to have a, a total blockade of our provincial borders. Uh, far from it. In a way, this question is related to the last one. Um, and there's been talk, and the Prime Minister has brought it up, and he wrote a letter to the various premiers discussing, raising the issue of the potential for engaging the Federal Emergencies Act. The premiers, we're told, have pushed back and said, no, we don't need that. We can handle our provincial issues just fine, and so now Mr. Trudeau appears to have backed off. Do you see any need to consider the Federal Emergencies Act being brought into force? I, I don't, actually, <clears throat> at this point in time. I think, I think the fact that there has been discussion, uh, that the, the use of the act has been raised as an issue, been uh, broadly discussed, as I understand it, uh, with the provincial and territorial levels, and that there's a consensus not to use it at this time. I think that that is probably the right right course of action at this time. Dr. St. John, was it a mistake to not close entry to Canada sooner? I mean, even now it's not complete, and British Columbia is moving ahead of Ottawa with quarantines. Uh, was the federal government slow? Um, well, it's, you know, it's so easy to look back and say, well, when we had the first 10 cases, should we have shut down the country at that time? Um, I mean, now you could look back and say, well, maybe we should have been more aggressive, but that's hindsight. And you have to go back to the time and say, what did we know at the time? And what could we have done differently at that time? Not today, but at that time. Because this is a dynamic epidemic, and it almost changes by the day uh, across the world. So the uh, having flexibility in policy is absolutely is absolutely important, and not be rigid in looking back and saying, "Oh, this is this is wrong. This was wrong. This was wrong." I think um, I think after this is over, we'll have some some inquiries by various uh, national commissions or whatever, and I think we'll have the lessons learned. But. Uh, at this point in time, it's very difficult to go back and say, we should have done this or that. You know, people are doing that every day, and it's I guess it's human nature, and we almost ask ourselves, are the people who are making the decisions today, the same people who made the decisions uh, two months ago, if they made the correct decisions two months ago, we can trust them to make the correct decision today. If they didn't make them two months ago correctly, then we have some questions about today. But you're right, at the end of all of this, uh, when we come out at the other end of it, there will be inquiries and questions asked and then questions answered. 
Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. My guest is Dr. Ronald St. John, former Director General of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Health Agency of Canada, and previously the Director of the Office for Special Health Initiatives at Health Canada. Dr. St. John, when it comes to this issue of uh, of um, vaccine, n- no one can wait. I mean, everybody wants it now. Um, does the time frame a year to 18 months sound right to you? And then are we going to be are we going to be facing an ethical issue or question about who among our population will be the first to be vaccinated? Um, well, yes and yes. <laughs> Let me explain. Um, the we have established a very careful and and uh, thorough scientific process for creating a vaccine and testing it and making sure that it works. Uh, and it begins with the whole uh, question. If you get sick with a virus, so this virus, um, do you get natural immunity? Does that mean so you recover and your body has responded with an immune response uh, and you are, are you now immune to, the, to any reinfection with this virus? And for how long does that immunity last? If you get, if you get measles, for example, you'll never get it again. Uh, you have a long-lasting immunity for the rest of your life. Uh, when we know that, we say, well, if we can duplicate the natural disease, then we'll create an immunity in you that will last for a long time. What do we know about the natural immunity to coronavirus? Not a whole lot. Um, we do know that people who recover do produce some antibodies, but how long they last, how effective they are at preventing reinfection, that's a question. Okay, put that aside and now think about, uh, let's assume that we do get good immunity from a coronavirus infection. Now we're going to create a vaccine, and it has to go through uh, three steps, three carefully planned steps before it can be available. One, we have to inoculate it in a, a, a very small number, 10, 20 volunteers, to make sure they don't have any serious adverse reactions. That's step one. And after a little bit of time, we've watched them, and they're okay. We expand it to step two, where we are phase two, we call it, where you inoculate maybe 40, maybe 50. Uh, It depends, people. Again, making sure that this vaccine is safe and making sure that these people do produce an immune response. And then finally, we get to phase three, where we do a broad-scale vaccination, and we measure how uh, protective This is where we find out if it really protects against illness. All of that takes time because you have to follow up all these people, make sure they're safe, make sure they're producing an immune response and so on. That's that's time consuming. Uh, At the best, it will probably take a year to 18 months, and that's assuming that there is this natural immunity that that I mentioned before. So it's still a road to go. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about different strain, or at least uh, uh, different um, waves of this flu. It happened in 1918. There were three of them. The first was relatively mild. The second one was the one that did all of the damage, or most of the damage, as far as lives lost was concerned. 
If we have multiple strains of or multiple waves of this particular coronavirus, is it possible that uh, it could mutate between uh, waves? And we'd, we, I, I don't want to be negative here, but we might well, develop a vaccine that wouldn't be really effective against the second wave. It, it, it's possible. I mean, we, have, we know uh, we have, there is precedent for that kind of phenomenon. For example, the dengue fever vi- virus, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, there are four types of dengue fever virus, type 1, 2, 3, 4. <laughs> and if you are infected with type 1, you get immunity to that type 1, but you don't get immunity to type 2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, a lot depends on the virus. And this, this virus has already mutated. All viruses mutate to some degree so that there are now two recognized strains of this virus. But the mutations so far have not been in areas that it will, would affect its ability to cause serious illness. So it's okay. still the same as far as our bodies is concerned, although there are two slightly different strains at this point in time. I have another it's question for... It could immune, it's possible it could mute more, but we'll wait and see. Okay, yeah. Uh, I have another question for you. As you know, as you well know, uh, Donald Trump, President of the United States, has an ongoing uh, uh, skirmish now with the World Health Organization, and not only the President, but also members of Congress, uh, members of the Senate, are questioning whether the World Health Organization is China-centric, and the WHO is saying it isn't. And now they're also, the WHO is also in a, in a, in a, in a battle, as it were, with, uh, with, with, with Taiwan. We have a minute here, Dr. St. John. You were very closely associated with the World Health Organization. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I worked in the World Health Organization for 10 years. And I, I can honestly say that the civil servants uh, in WHO are impartial. Uh, they are neutral. Uh, they, uh, they do uh, work for the best interests of the organization and its member states. However, that said, WHO does have to operate in global politics. It's just a reality. Um, so that when there are conflicts between nations, it's obviously going to affect uh, how WHO operates. And WHO has to operate in that political environment in a way that uh, does not adversely affect one country more than another. That's been there for ever since the creation of WHO back in 1948. So... It's just a reality, and uh, I think it's unfortunate to to accuse WHO of um, of bias in favor of one nation or another. So there's been a lot of talk about the Emergencies Act, and uh, the Prime Minister is backing away from that. He sent a letter to the Premiers suggesting, uh, from what I gather, suggesting that it's something that they would want to talk about. The Premiers pushed back and said, no, we uh, we don't want the Emergencies Act. And so the prime minister has backed away from that. But there's also the uh, the issue about uh, uh, are Canada's police overstepping during the pandemic? And I started to first look at this when I was on the Twitter feed of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And uh, there's a heading that's uh, titled, It's About Public Health, Not About Public Order. And the CCLA has concerns about police laying charges related to COVID-19 and not doing so, as I understand it, according to the law. Michael Bryant is the former Attorney General for the province of Ontario. He's also the Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Mr. Bryant, thank you for the time. What's the what's your concern, and, and in, in your words, what's going on? Uh, what's going on is uh, that the, uh, the rules that are in place and on their face, on, on paper, 
they are constitutional and uh, they are valid, uh, get uh, enforced or interpreted in a way by bylaw officers or police officers uh, such that it, uh, it misses the mark. Uh, so if, if the point is to um, have bylaw officers and police officers follow the uh, guidelines of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and see themselves first as um, as assisting uh, the pandemic by educating people, telling people what the rules are. We can't expect that everybody knows the latest rules that have been passed. Not everybody's on the Twitter feed of um, of the Solicitor General of Ontario. Uh, there's also rules coming out of different governments, municipal, provincial, and federal. And so they inform people, here's the rules. Uh, secondly, they can warn people. Uh, they can say, look, you know, you, 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 there, I, I see you're here having a picnic. Break it up. Go home. Uh, this is against uh, either a, um, a municipal or a provincial order. And then only as a last resort to uh, ticket and punish people. And, and the reason for that is because the pandemic is about public health. It's not uh, uh, like, say, after 911 or uh, during the... Um, the October crisis, where they're actually, you know, the, the the crisis was one of um, unlawfulness and violence. In this case, the crisis is public health. So to turn it into uh, a uh, a public order crisis, uh, we think is uh, wrong. Uh, it's contrary to what the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police say. And the, the worst part is, and, and then I'll uh, be quiet and, and let you ask ask questions. But the worst part is that the people who tend to be getting these tickets are often the most vulnerable. Uh, so it may be um, people who are living on the streets, uh, there may be mental health or addiction, or it's uh, people who are, um, you know, one foot over the line on a green space in a park, and a bylaw officer, not as trained as a police officer, doesn't have the accountability of a police officer, has a little bit of power, and excited with that power, uh, starts uh, over-ticketing. Those are mm-hmm. our concerns. Look, I appreciate thorough answers at this particular time because we're all looking for something in answers, some information, and we apply the information that we receive individually to our own lives. So no issue with the thorough answers. Toronto Police uh, announced 360 personnel in total, including 160 police officers, are patrolling public areas to enforce physical distancing. On the Easter weekend, you had a issues with that I, I i believe yeah i thought that that was overkill uh, uh in terms of uh um the, the way it was rolled out um 350 people uh dispatched to uh, as they put it conduct an enforcement blitz is is pretty much the opposite of what i just described um and, and there's two problems first is you know it's 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 not uh it's it's not warning or educating. It's, you know, enforcement blitz means ticketing. And secondly, the way it was announced uh, unquestionably uh, was with a view that it would be reported in the media and it would be treated a little bit like those um, enforcement blitzes that take place, which make a lot of sense during long weekends, say, involving the OPP and drinking and driving. Okay, I I do have to stop you because we only have a minute. I have another question. So it's not an issue of uh, the ordinance being passed. It's the application, when, where, and think before you do it, if I understand you correctly. But let me ask you this then, in the minute we have left. 
How do you balance public health with individual rights? Well, you do it by empowering the people who have the discretion, the police officers, with that discretion. And uh, they follow the guidelines from their chiefs. So the Ottawa Police Services chief, I think, has got it right. Uh, they're not ticketing. The police are not ticketing like crazy. The bylaw officers are. Uh, Toronto ought to take take the same approach. Uh, make this about public health, education, and warning, and not about racking up the tickets. I think that's how you hit the mark. Our guest says that the usual time frame for developing a vaccine from beginning to distribution may be three to five years and can take up to 25 years. Professor Peter Hotez joins us. He's the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Health in Houston, also co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development. He's a vaccine scientist, and Dr. Hotez has been very good to us with his time over the last weeks throughout this pandemic issue. Professor, thank you very much for the time. And uh, so I'd like to ask you about that usual length of time to develop an effective vaccine from start to public delivery up to five years. Well, thanks so much. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I don't consider it a good week unless I appear on your show, so um, I look forward to it. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, in terms of vaccine development, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. I've devoted my life to developing new vaccines for emerging and neglected diseases, and actually the average time is 10 to 25 years. Uh, this is about the longest time horizon. That's why it's so hard. Uh, to attract investment in vaccines because the time horizons are ridiculously long, the the costs are high, and the risk is high because most things actually don't work uh, as they move through the clinical pipeline. That's why it takes a very special kind of investor to put money into uh, vaccine development in just a handful of people like, and Bill and Melinda Gates probably being the best known. There are a few others, but um, but, it, but it is a rare individual that, that will uh, support vaccine development. Actually, the record... Uh, according to my friend Paul Offit, who's a professor at University of Pennsylvania, says it's about four years for the mumps vaccine. I thought it was five years for Ebola, but apparently mumps beats it by a year. And and the reason I say that is we're hearing uh, from leaders in the federal government, including my mentor, Dr. Fauci, that the uh, aspirational goal is a year to 18 months. And I was just caution to say that and emphasize the word aspirational because uh, it would it would break all records if we were able to do that. So realistically, three years, four years, five years. Yeah, you know, you know, the thing about new emerging infectious diseases is they set you up to make you look stupid. So the minute you, the minute I were to give a number, you could you could take it to the bank that it'll be wrong. But uh, potentially, yes. And and the reason that number is important is because we're talking about this virus. Uh, because of aggressive social distancing going down or disappearing as we move into the summer. And I think it will go dramatically down in terms of number of new cases. It won't entirely go away, but many of us are thinking it will come in repeated waves over the next few years, just like the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, we call it 1918, but in fact, it lasted to the end of 1920 with, with these repeated waves. And, and that's going to be the complexity is how a nation like Canada or the U.S. Uh, navigates that complexity in terms of uh, when we advise people to go back to work and how we uh, look at the business environment, how governments manage, what's the legal framework. This is going to be very, very complicated. It doesn't mean we're all hunkered down for three years, 
people will be coming back to work in certain areas and um, and uh, maybe whole, whole area segments of the economy will totally reopen. But we're going to have to be have uh, be mindful and have situational awareness to recognize that the virus could back could come back in occasional waves over the next three years. The Danes, the Austrians, the Czechs are uh, actually going to, as you know, going to be easing up on their national lockdowns in the next few days. We're going to be speaking with the Danish economist a little later in in the program today. But if it if we're looking at a realistic time frame here of three, four, five years for the development of a efficacious uh, vaccine, I just looked that looked up that word earlier today. I like to use words I look up. Uh, if we, if we, if we're waiting for looking at that sort of time frame, Professor Hotevs, does the focus then really have to? I don't necessarily mean sh- want to say shift, but does an additional focus have to be on on identifying medications we may already have in the system and in the pipeline that will treat uh, a patient who contracts COVID nineteen? Yeah, and in fact, that's what's underway. Um, what we're seeing is an array of new technologies being rolled out, uh, vaccines being the longest time horizon, uh, new drugs, maybe a, a, a shorter time horizon, and the shortest of all is maybe repurposing existing medicines that we already have been using for a long time and seeing if they have antiviral activity and the convalescent antibody therapy. So it's not only the vaccine. And, and again, I want to emphasize that sometimes People misunderstand me when I say this. I'm not at all advocating that we live like the way we're living now for the next three years. I'm saying we are going to open things up probably in the summer and then uh, um, and we'll get resembling some semblance of normal. But we have to be mindful of the fact that this virus could come back in another wave or two waves at the end of the fall, let's say, you know, towards the end of this year or early next year, the year after that. And navigating that comple- those complexities uh, is going to require bringing together some of the really smart uh, minds in the United States and, and in Canada. I mean, that's why you have, you know, the, your amazing research universities like University of Toronto, University of British Columbia, McGill. And it's always dangerous when I start naming universities. Cause I don't oh, you're doing well. I want a few of them out. <laughs> you know, you know, Queen, Queen's University, Western Western Ontario, I mean, Western Ontario and London, I mean, these, University of Alberta and Calgary, uh, these are powerhouses, right? University of Manitoba is, is, is amazing. So, you know, and all that amazing work that comes out of Winnipeg uh, uh, from the public health research labs that gave us the Ebola uh, vaccine. Uh, and there's a reason why the Canadian government's been asking Canadians to invest in your research universities. Now, now it's going to pay off because they're going to give you the great advice you need on how to start opening things up using mo- epidemiologic models, uh, in some cases new therapies. Uh, this is where uh, the investment starts paying off for you guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.